in Psalm 6, we are reading the thoughts and the words of our Lord and our Savior. And so this is the example that we ought to follow. This is the example which we ought to imitate. And so consider with me three things drawn from Psalm 6. In the first place, express yourself to God. Express yourself to God. I'm going to state the obvious to you, namely that different cultures are different. Different cultures are different. And one of the things that varies between culture and culture is how expressive they are. How expressive they are. Some cultures are very communicative and very expressive, while others are less communicative and less expressive. If I think of Europeans, and if you will allow me to stereotype for just a moment, I would think of Italians on the more expressive side, and I would think of Finns on the non-expressive side. Those are generalizations, but we all know different cultures. Uh, as one who ministers in, uh, in Spanish and English, sometimes people say, ask me, why isn't the American congregation more like this? Or why is su such and such? Their, their cultural perceptions are, are different. They're distinct. So different people are more expressive or less expressive. And now take it one step further Religion within a given culture can therefore be more or less expressive. Now, that's not necessarily a negative thing. It's really just an observation. Christianity in one part of the world may look different from Christianity in another part of the world because of the cultural expressiveness of that place. We tend to express religion in a manner that is consistent with the culture in which we were raised, or perhaps even the subculture of a particular church or kind of churches or denomination or association of churches. These things can profoundly express the way in which we communicate or express our own religion. And I want, you to, I want to exhort you this evening to look to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Psalm 6 as an example of what is appropriate and godly in expressing ourselves to God. Because Psalm 6 shows our Lord being very expressive. And it reveals to us in Psalm 6 the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha. In the midst of his suffering, Jesus cries out to God and he expresses himself. And this is appropriate and it is right. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, it says, with loud cries and tears. With loud cries and tears, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So loud cries and tears can be reverent? Absolutely. The scriptures tell us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, it uses words of intensity, he prayed earnestly, it says. He prayed intensely. He prayed vehemently. What was he saying? What was he praying? How was he feeling? Tell me. Read Psalm 6. Jesus says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. 
Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. If we are to follow Jesus' example, if we are to be like him and to imitate him, then we can look at how Jesus expressed himself in Psalm 6 and we too can express ourselves to God. Perhaps you think that you shouldn't express yourself to God. Perhaps in, the, in times of difficulty and distress, you think to yourself, if it's God's will that I endure affliction, then I shouldn't pray to him to remove it. But no, bring your petitions to God. Express yourself to God. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. How long, O Lord? But Psalm 6 shows us sanctified emotion. The psalmist, Jesus, speaks with earnest agony. And so we should not think that just because God has permitted me to pass through affliction, that I cannot express my petition to God that he would deliver me from that affliction. No, we may express our emotion and express our feelings and express our petitions to God, but we must submit them to God. We must submit them to God. Emotion or, or our passions are not inherently bad, but they must be bounded. They must be ordered. They must be rightly aligned to God's will. And so we do not offer up our, our petition to God by way of challenge or by way of defiance or demand, but rather we humbly but expressively bring our petitions to God. Emotion is natural and human. Excess of emotion is what is bad. We must not be overcome by our emotions. That would be one extreme. But neither should we somehow try to make ourselves uh, without any emotion, just apathetic. Okay, if, if emotion can go outside of boundaries and even lead to sin, then I will attempt to feel nothing at all. Well, you're going to be fighting against the most basic parts of your human being if that's what you try to do. If you try to go for apathy in religion also, now what do you have? A dead, cold heart in relation to God? That's not Christ-like. That's not like Jesus. That's not like Psalm 6. We ought to express ourselves to God. Remember that it is not sin to grieve over that which is grievous, nor to be sad because of that which is saddening. The scriptures even say, be angry, but do not sin. When we see injustice, when we see evil, it is right that there is an anger, a desire that these things be avenged. But we do not sin, we do not avenge ourselves, or we do not revenge ourselves, or avenge others, because you revenge yourself, but you avenge others. In our righteous anger, we do not then cross the boundaries of what God has established for order and rightness, but it is right to be angry 
against that which is unjust or unrighteous. And when there is something sad, it is okay to be sad. Sometimes people are so terrified of of grief, they don't want to pass through grief because the waters seem very deep to them. And so whether it's the grief of some kind of loss or the grief, uh, the loss of a relationship or the loss of a a loved one or the loss of uh, whatever it might be, something that you've lost, rather than grieving that thing, people just don't want to feel anything in regard to it. But we see in Jesus, he, he drenches his couch, he drenches his bed with tears. Men don't cry. Jesus does. You must have a stiff, stiff upper lip. Keep calm and carry on. Well, there's a time for that, yes. But there's also a time to grieve. There's also a time to be sad and to take it to God, to submit it to the Lord, to express yourself to God. The scriptures even say to grieve with those who grieve, to weep with those who weep. We don't say, stop crying. That's ridiculous. No, we say, I'm so sorry that that happened. I'm so sorry. Jesus expresses his agony. He does not defy God. He does not accuse God. He expresses his agony. He asks for mercy and for relief in God's timing. And that's a key phrase, isn't it? How long, O Lord, in his timing? I bring this to you. How long, O Lord? Which leads to our second point this evening. We ought to express ourselves to God Secondly, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that when Jesus was reviled, when he was mistreated, when he suffered, it says, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the Jesus of Psalm 6, who cries out, How long, O Lord? is the Jesus who entrusts himself to him who judges justly. So we know that Psalm 6 is not defiance, that Psalm 6 is not some kind of complaint. It's not discontentment. We see that Jesus entrusts himself. And brethren, as we pass through various and necessary trials for a time, we must not only express ourselves to God, but also entrust ourselves to God. And under this heading, remember three, three brief things with me. As we entrust ourselves to God, remember firstly that God's anger is not a passion. God's anger is not a passion. Verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And to entrust ourselves to God we need to remember that what we call wrath and anger in God are not like wrath and anger in man. In us, they are passions, they are motions. We are moved to be angry. We are moved to be wrathful. Not so in God. So what is God's wrath? And what is God's anger? It is his justice when that justice is applied to a wicked object, when someone experiences the discipline 
of God, when someone experiences God pouring out discipline or condemnation onto, onto wickedness, then we call that his anger and his wrath. But it is reassuring to the child of God, it is reassuring to the Christian to know that it's not that God's mad at me, but rather it's that he loves me and he is sanctifying me. What do the scriptures say in Proverbs and Hebrews about the Lord and his discipline? The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. So his discipline unto me is not because I've moved him to anger and he's just venting it on me. It's not that I've moved him to wrath and he's just letting it out until he's, until he's fully vented himself against me. No, but rather it is my loving heavenly father who does chastise me and does discipline me. And when I'm feeling that chastisement, when I'm feeling that discipline, I call it anger and wrath and rightly so. But in God himself, there's no turbulent wrath that's just constantly spinning in him, eternal, essential, immutable wrath and anger in God. No, God is infinitely and eternally blessed and happy. So it is, I can entrust myself to God because I know that his anger and his wrath are not a passion that he's just going to get mad at me, but rather I know he will lovingly discipline me and chastise me. And I want him to do that because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Remember that God's anger is not a passion. It is fatherly love. So entrust yourself to God. Secondly, this is the second thing to remember as you entrust yourself to God. Be reminded that afflictions apply to both body and soul. Afflictions apply to both body and soul. We see this in verses two and three. I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. But then what does he say? My soul also is greatly troubled. I need to remember that my physical infirmities or the physical infirmities of others are not outside of God's providence, but also the afflictions of my soul are not outside of God's providence. We need to look at sickness in the body, weakness in the body, and say, God is teaching me to entrust myself to him in the weakness and the pain of my body. And we also need to think about the weakness and pain of our souls. And we need to say, God is teaching me to entrust myself to him in the darkness of my heart's night. I need to trust him as he permits me to endure physical pain and suffering. I need to trust him as he permits me to endure perhaps deep sadness and sorrow and affliction and agony, maybe not even of my body. Perhaps I'm perfectly healthy and yet my soul is bitterly conflicted. My soul is indeed languishing within me. Afflictions apply to both body and soul and God is teaching us and God is sanctifying us through both of those things. But remember thirdly, as we entrust ourselves to God, that God's permission is purposeful. His permission is purposeful. Why does God permit afflictions in my body? Why does God permit afflictions in my soul? It's not because he's mad at me. It's not because he's ignorant or absent, but rather God permits these afflictions purposefully to sanctify me and to purify me 
by testing and proving my faith and accomplishing his own holy purposes. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Fulfill your purposes in me, O Lord. Complete your work in me, O Lord. You see, by entrusting yourself to God, you continue to endure physical pain. You continue to endure soul pain. And yet you say, Lord, complete your work. Oh, Lord, please be done with me. Oh, Lord, please finish the job in me. But we know he is at work in us. We know that his permission is not purposeful. The pain itself is not the end. It's a means to an end. Now, for some, that does not sound like relief. Why? Because if God's permission is purposeful, but his purpose is that I continue to suffer, then where is the relief? How can I entrust myself to one whose purpose it is to allow me to continue to suffer? Entrust yourself to the one who will allow you to continue to suffer? How can that be? Well, remember that God's timing is not our timing. Paul expressed himself to God and asked for his affliction to be removed, but God allowed it to remain. Many say this too shall pass, but we should also say this too will last. (laughs) Some people drench their bed in tears, drowning in their own sorrow, crying out. And they may say, how can I entrust myself to one whose will it may be that my afflictions are not taken away? Well, we can entrust ourselves to God because he most certainly has taken away our afflictions and he most certainly will take away all our afflictions. Because remember whose footsteps we're following. Remember whose example we are imitating. Jesus' suffering went all the way to death. But what did Jesus say on the cross? He said, it is finished. And what did he say after he rose from the dead? Jesus said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Fear not. We can entrust ourselves to God in afflictions of both body and soul because even if it is the Lord's will that we suffer all the way unto our own death, that's it. It's done. It is finished. Jesus has definitively limited our suffering to only what we experience in this life. And so I'm not entrusting myself to one who has promised that in this life I shall have happiness perfectly at all times. No, I'm entrusting myself to the one who has said it is after death that you will enjoy light and life eternal. Because Jesus went all the way to death. The Lord has not promised us health and wealth in this life, although he gives us so much of those things. And so we should not fail to entrust ourselves to him simply because it may be that our afflictions continue even unto our last days because we know that ultimately he has taken away all my afflictions in Jesus Christ and ultimately he will take away all my afflictions through Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, all physical and spiritual suffering have been bounded and guided for the Christian. They sanctify us here and prepare us 
for joy everlasting thereafter. Brothers and sisters, as we express ourselves to God and say, how long, O Lord, we ought to also entrust ourselves to God so that in the third place, thirdly, we ought to expect the glory of God. We ought to expect the glory of God. In Psalm 6, we see Jesus Christ in agony of body and soul, afflicted and bowed down. But that's not how Psalm 6 ends. That's not how Psalm 6 ends. Let's read verses 8 through 10. Jesus Christ, now victorious, says this, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Psalm 6 is one of many like it, where the enemies of the king of Israel are triumphing over him, and the king cries out to God to deliver him from his enemies, and God hears his prayer and delivers him from his enemies. So we see in verse 10, the reversal of fate against the enemies of Jesus Christ. Those who rejected him, those who despised him, those who were his enemies and are his enemies, they will be ashamed, greatly troubled, turned back, and put to shame in a moment. And I need to direct myself to those enemies of Jesus Christ this evening. I don't know all of you, and at a quarterly gathering, I would assume that the majority of us, many of us, are God's children, believers, Christians. But not all of you. And you need to understand something if you have not believed in Jesus Christ. You need to understand that all those who look at the cross of Jesus Christ and hear the good news of the gospel and yet put no trust in him, do not obey the command of the gospel to believe in Jesus Christ and call upon God in his name, that those who reject Jesus Christ and refuse to follow in his footsteps or imitate his example, you must be warned because you have made a bitter choice. You are like the prodigal son who chose to have his inheritance here and now as you seek finite joys and fleeting pleasures in this life. But what is the end of those pleasures that you seek? And what is your own end? Psalm 6 verse 10 says that your end is shame and great trouble. For the wicked, for the unbelieving, finite satisfaction leads to infinite suffering. Finite satisfaction, very finite satisfaction, leads to very infinite, that doesn't make sense, I know. It leads to very infinite suffering. Unbelievers may and ought to expect as a sure and certain future 
a horrible torment forever and ever if you, dis- if you despise the cross and the one who hung on it. Do you know what that fate will be? If you choose to have all of your pleasure and all of your satisfaction in this life and you refuse to bow to Jesus Christ and to believe in him and to hurry after him in the way of the cross, do you know the great trouble that will come upon you in a moment? The darkness of hell will terrify you. The flames of hell will torture you. It is a place that you cannot escape and you will die in fear and pain forever. Your conscience will sting you and all that wickedness that was once your pride will become your everlasting shame. And all that sinful satisfaction you sought, all those sweets will become bitter and sour tastes which you will be unable to forget. I can't get this taste out of my mouth. And you will have a conscience that you cannot escape. And you will wail and groan and rage and die in shame and regret forever. But do you know what the greatest torment and terror of hell will be? Do you know what the worst sentence against you will be? The sharp pains of your body and the wrenching madness of your soul cannot compare to Psalm 6, verse 9. Depart from me. Depart from me. There is something that every single man, woman, and child wants. There's something that the soul of man needs and longs for. Do you know what that is? It's not food. It's not drink. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not fame. It's not family. There is a deep desire, a longing, and a need that is woven into the very fiber of our being. And do you know what that is? That the creature desperately needs and longs for in his most inner parts. It is God. The light of God. The knowledge of God. The favor of God. The glory of God. The face of God. Man longs for God. Man longs to be with God. Man longs for the satisfaction of the love and the light of God. It is our most fundamental need and our most profound desire. And Jesus Christ, the one who once hung on a cross, will say to the wicked, depart from me. Jesus, Jesus, of course, quoted these words in Matthew chapter 7 or in Luke chapter 13. And when Jesus pronounces this sentence, what will happen Psalm 6, verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Depart from me. Because they will depart to everlasting darkness and dissatisfaction and despair. Despair. True despair. Hopelessness. A realization that your greatest desire, the one thing, the one thing that can satisfy you forever and ever has banished you. And that you will die forever deprived of that which gives eternal life and blessedness. 
And when that sentence from Jesus the judge is pronounced, depart from me, the deepest part of the being of an unbeliever will ache and tremble and those words will ring in their ears forever and ever and ever. Depart from me. Their soul will say, wait, please, no, anything but that. Anything but that. Depart from me. Forever and ever and ever. Anything but that. The one thing. The one thing I need. And Jesus will say, I bid you to come to me. I called you to come to me. And you said, depart from me. And now I declare to you, depart from me. The day of judgment will come. But the gospel which we proclaim is that that day has not yet come. And to all, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, experienced bitter agony and suffering of body and soul. Why? For us, to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us from that darkness from that condemnation, from that corruption which infects our very being. And we know that in him and in his life and in his death, in his precious blood, our sins are forgiven. Because Jesus says, my prayer has been heard. My sacrifice has been accepted. I will not die and remain in darkness. No, I have conquered death. Psalm 6 is the king declaring his victory. I have been heard. I am the victor. I have triumphed. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Expect the glory of God. In this age, when we die, our bodies remain here and dissolve. But our souls are taken by the angels to be with the Lord. And there in heaven... That work of transformation in the soul, which has begun now, will be immediately perfected. The soul will be glorified. And the soul will enjoy that vision of blessedness to know and to see God as a perfected soul. The true knowledge of God and enjoyment of him for which we were created and for which we have longed every moment of our lives. And those bodies that we left here, when Jesus descends to this world once more and initiates a new age, an everlasting age, those bodies will grow like seeds. They will be raised up. And as our souls were perfected and glorified, so our bodies will be perfected and glorified and re reunited in true glorification, a perfected human like Jesus Christ. And then in both body and soul, we will enjoy the vision of God, that ravishing, rapturous delight of man a joy and glory so great that it will satisfy us forever and ever and ever. And we will never need or want anything else ever again. Preachers wish that they had the words 
to express the joy of the glory of God. We know it in foretastes. We know it in glimpses. But we will experience it in fullness and perfection hereafter. And we ought to expect it. It is ours. Jesus has won it for us. And it has been covenanted unto us. Brothers and sisters, we talked earlier about those who don't want to entrust themselves to God if that means enduring suffering here on earth. But that's short-sighted. Entrust yourself to God that though the way of the cross, yes, leads through suffering and even unto death, Jesus has conquered death. So when we come to the cross, when we come to our death, it has no power over us. And the grave has no claim on us and the law has no charge against us. And as one said, our souls will not be required of us, but received. The foolish rich man who stored up things, it said that his soul was required of him. Our souls will not be required. They will be received. And heaven will make amends for all. The suffering that we find so difficult to endure now will pale in comparison to the glory then. And the affliction that we bear here will fade and it will be forgotten as the joy of the glory of God overpowers all human sin and sorrow and suffering. So brothers and sisters, believers, children of God, will you have your inheritance now? Or will you wait for it? Would you be excused from suffering and given an earthly glory now? Would you give up the way of the cross and take your inheritance here on earth? Don't you see what folly and lack of faith that would be? Finite suffering leads to infinite joy. We ought to express ourselves to God that we might endure suffering, that we might endure affliction. We ought to entrust ourselves to God and say, how long, O Lord? But we must do this all the while expecting the glory of God. Expecting, expectation, that's Christian hope. It is finished. He has risen. And every Lord's Supper, we say this at our church very often, at our Lord's Supper, we're always hoping it's the last one because we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the scriptures end with that longing of the Christian heart, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we are expecting glory, and every week when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're saying, this is my ticket. This is my right. This is my title. This is why I expect glory, not because of my body and my blood or my covenant, but because of the covenant body and blood of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ought to look at Psalm 6 and say, this is godly expression. And this is godly entrusting. And then we look at the end of Psalm 6 and we say, Jesus' prayer was heard. Jesus' suffering ended. His sacrifice was accepted by God. He has satisfied divine justice against us. Our sins have been forgiven. His obedience has been attributed to us. And so therefore, we have been born again unto a living hope. And we are being guarded for glory, a glory that is being guarded for us. Expect glory, brothers and sisters, because Jesus has won it and Jesus has entered into it and he is bringing us there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you 
that Jesus' prayer was heard. We thank you that his expressions of agony and suffering were reverent. We thank you that all his life, he was obedient and innocent and holy and blameless. We thank you that even in his death, he was innocent and blameless and holy, an acceptable sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. How we thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. How we thank you for the light and the life everlasting that we enjoy in him. While we are yet here on earth, we ask for your help, that we might be content, that we might persevere in the midst of affliction, that we might trust your purposes, that we might trust your providence. And Lord, please forgive us for our unbelief, our discontentment, our expressions that are not godly, our expressions that are not correct, that are bitterness, that are complaints, that are defiance, that are challenges. Oh Lord, please forgive us. Discipline us, sanctify us, teach us as a loving heavenly father and help us to have true hope as we look forward and ex- look forward to and expect entrance into and enjoyment of all that Jesus Christ has won for us. We praise you and we thank you. And we ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.